Good morning, church. It was a busy weekend here at the church, wasn't it? Men met, women met. It was a it was a really busy day yesterday. It was awesome. There's a lot of golfing, some sunburns, and some hurt egos on the golf course. So that was good. Uh, those who were there, so glad you joined us. Um, I, I don't know if he's in here, but he's not. Gary Wong did a phenomenal job for the guys that were there. Yeah, it was so good. The only regret that I have with him doing that is that we didn't record it. And that is something that we'll have to remember because the message that he brought was so powerful uh, about science and God and the need for a savior. Phenomenal. We will, we will figure out how to get that to the rest of you because it was that good. Um, my name is Simon. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We are currently in our study in the book of Acts. We've been kind of plowing through that, and we're going to get to about mid-January and then take a break and get into some other fun books as we get running forward. But um, we have called this the house that Jesus builds, and it's it's continuing. It hasn't stopped. He's still building it. He's still doing something. As we explore what it means for this new season for Grace Hills Church, what better place to go than to be rooted in where God started his church and what it looked like and how they dealt with the issues that came. So with that, I want to jump into this section. It's probably one of my favorite sections in Acts. Uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47 is where we're going to be. It's, if you're a pastor, it just gives you so much. It shows you what the church should look like. It's that this is the plumb line that we should hold these things to. But with that, at the core of every human is a drive to belong. Have you noticed that? There's this drive within all of us that we want to belong to something, when I was up in Seattle, uh, Pledge Week was always very entertaining for those that were going into the fraternities and sorority systems, and you would watch them march them around, and they would make them do humiliating things and wear ridiculous things, and they would haze them a little bit. But the whole point is that they wanted to be a part of something. They wanted to belong, and they were willing to endure whatever humiliation came, and their parents would pay whatever price was associated with that for them to not be alone while they were at college. We do these things. So if you even think about how Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the social media that is out there, how it works, it's about belonging. Those likes, those thumbs, those subscriptions that you're trying to get people to be a part of, it's about belonging to people, being accepted by others. There is something deep inside of us where we have that. We join clubs, we pay dues, we dress a certain way, we eat certain foods. We'll speak about things in a certain way, so we'll belong. And there are things that drive us to even do things that we're not comfortable with, that we may not even agree with for the fear of not belonging and being rejected by others at times. And that the fear would be that you would cast out of the group or a tribe. If you look around the world, there are tribes that exist all over. And if you do what you're supposed to do in the tribe, you're welcomed in. And if you don't, what happens? You get kicked out. And because they know that there is life in numbers, there's life in community that belong. We see it in the Old Testament. When Israelites would sin, they would be removed from the other people until they were made clean again to come back in, that there was this punishment attached to it. So we understand if there's a punishment, you're taking away a good thing to say that this is a bad thing if you're outside of it. Well, God knows this because he designed us this way. He wrote this DNA on our very heart. In Exodus 6, 7, he said, you will be my people and I will be your God, knowing that there was a craving and a desire to belong. 
And he knows that when we're disconnected from him, the problem is this, that we start searching for something to belong to. And we will find that in people, places, institutions. And by the way, they can never fill that void of belonging that you want because they will let you down. My story of understanding the church and being a part of the church is probably why I like this passage so much. I didn't grow up in a church. I didn't go to church. My parents didn't go to church. They didn't want nothing to do with church. And so when I was too much for them to handle, where did they send me? The church. So I never understood that. We're not going, but you take them. You, you need to fix them, Jesus. And so I went to church, and I didn't like it, but all of a sudden, I met a guy named Mike McKay. He welcomed me in. He surrounded me with other leaders. He surrounded me with people my age. He walked with me. He welcomed me in, knowing that I had no church background, that I was constantly getting in trouble, that I was constantly getting yelled at because I didn't understand, but he showed me grace. He showed me mercy. He welcomed me in, not just to the youth group, not just to you know, being a part of the church, but to his family. I mean, I used, I used to babysit his kids, and it, maybe he was using me, but it was great. He got free babysitting, and I got to be a part and, and do stuff. He let me serve. He let me teach, and I just got to be a part of this family, and the, the reason, this is why I love the church so much. I have mom and dad who love me very much, but they didn't know Jesus, and I needed people to show me Jesus, and the church walked with me. And it was this beautiful picture of what it meant to belong with all of my mistakes, all of my flaws, all of my brokenness, yet I was loved. Luke's going to show us that today. He's going to show us how he has saved us from our belonging problem that we have in life. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Acts 2, 42 through 47. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the seat right there. If you, did, if you forgot one, or if you're like, man, I just don't know how to get around the Bible, that's fine. It'll be up on the screen and you can follow along with us. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done throughout the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, thank you so much for giving us a picture of what the church looks like, what the church is doing, how the church is formed and functioned, and how you work in it. Thank you for saving us individually, and thank you for saving us to each other. Lord, I I ask that as I try to attempt to communicate the truths in your word right now, that you would speak through me, that they, the people here today would see the beauty of your church and why you've created the bride of Christ and why you have given it to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take anything that would be a distraction and a hindrance, and I ask that you would give me what I need to communicate today this morning. We love you. Pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. So as we saw last week, God had just saved 3,000 individuals by Peter preaching the gospel. He, he preaches the gospel. If you're like, what's the gospel? I, I say it every week, but if you really want to hear it, go back last week and you'll get the whole, this is the, this is the gospel. But he shares the gospel. 3,000 people are saved. And there's something that happens there. He saves each and every one of them. And you're like, well, yeah, I get it, Simon. There's 3,000 people. He saved them. No, 
Individually, he saved those people. He is a personal God who reaches out to individuals to save them. And he loves them and he cares. And there's something important for us to understand. It's not just this, oh, here's a group of people collectively. Now that is happening. But if we miss the point that he is reaching down into this world, that he saw Simon broken, battered, sinful, problem, and save me. There is a love and affection that flows behind that. But here's the thing. He didn't just stop there. He did save me. But then he also saves me to others as well. And he brings us together to do something different. Some, someone say, well, you know what? I, I, don't, uh, I don't need the church, Simon. I got Jesus. That's all that I need. I just got Jesus, I do my thing. I don't need the church, I don't need the polish. Institutions, they're probably corrupt, they're probably messed up, they're probably gonna take advantage of me. All they want is my tithe money. Christians are weird, I don't like to be around them. I do my thing, they do their thing, and we're all saved. I'll see them in heaven when we have the glorified bodies. The only problem with that is that this doesn't support that. That's bad theology. And what I would say by that is, if that was God's intended plan, after he saves all these people, he would have been like, hey, I saved you, go home. Is, is that what happens? No, it's not at all what happens, is it? He doesn't send them away to go do their own thing on their own, but he saves them, and then they all stay, and they start to do life together. They start to exist in community. That there's something important about existing in community, something bigger than themselves, and I think that's the important part. It's not just about us. Collectively, God is using the church to do this thing. It's not an individual religion. That's not what it is. So there's four things that happen in the early church, how it functions, what it does. And what I want to do is I want to kind of, kind of chime through those things. I, I haven't quite put my mind around it, but it's almost as if this should be like the four pillars of our church. As I'm looking at what this looks like, and I haven't thought through it completely, but it just seems like these are the pillars of every church and what it should look like. And here they are, learning, fellowship, worship, and witnessing. Those are going to be our four points for the day. Um, if you like structure, there's a lot of structure today. Sometimes I'm loose and I'm all over the place. Today we got structure. One, learning. Now, like I said last week, truth matters. Maybe you heard me say that, and I said it a couple of times, because truth matters. And we are in a day and an age where it seems like no one knows what's true anymore, right? Right? I listened to this guy and he said this was true. And I listened to this guy and he said it was true. I listened to this guy and he said that guy isn't true and that he might be true. Who's true? Like we just don't know what news to follow, what papers to read, who's telling me what, what facts are right. This scientist said this, this scientist said that. What's truth? Well, Simon just said truth matters. It does. Where you find your truth matters a lot. Where you go for your truth is highly important to who we are. Whose truth do you study? Whose truth do you submit to? Is it mine? Is it yours? Is it some other person? Is it a new truth? Is it an old truth? Is it a tested truth? Is it an untested truth? Where do you find truth? Because where you find truth is going to guide you and is going to direct you with where you're going to go. And they're like, well, this new person has this new truth. Well, how do we know it's right or wrong? Has it gone through history? Have we, have we seen it line up with what actually works in life, what works in the, word, in the world? And that's what we're trying to say, 
The early church was constantly studying and learning the truth of God. It stuck to God's truth, not man's truth. It says they studied in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay, well, here's the next question. What were they teaching? What was being communicated? Well, Peter showed us last week that they were in the Old Testament scriptures, that they were going through the scrolls, they were teaching all those things. And so what ends up happening is they were also teaching what Jesus taught them for the 40 days that he was there. Well, what do you mean by that? Jesus showed them over those 40 days how all scripture points to him. So now what's happened is they've read the scripture, they know the scriptures, but they didn't understand what the scriptures were really saying. Jesus comes for 40 days and he tells them, this is what the scriptures mean. All scripture points to me. So all of a sudden, Peter's pulling out all these random verses from the Old Testament and he's connecting all of them to Christ because God has shown him. So when Jesus teaches that scripture, we know that, that's, he, we have lots of books on it. It also was the three years that they walked with Jesus. So suddenly, as they have been given the Holy Spirit, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus has taught them all those things that they went through like, Oh, when he did this, he meant this. Oh, man, when he did this, he was actually talking about this other thing that was going on. I missed the whole thing. And so now they're teaching everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus taught. They're using scripture constantly to go through and understand what's going on. A growing church is always going to open up God's word. If you're in a church where you're not in God's word, you have to start asking questions. In 1 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or woman may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, what's going on there? Why do we have scripture? It's to equip us. Equip us for the life that we have. Equip us for who we are. That would train us. That would correct us. That would prove us. Like, it's meant to do something. It's not just, oh, what a great read. If the word is living and active, when we read it, it, it reads our heart. We don't read the Bible. It reads us. And it exposes our hearts, our nature, who we are, so we'll see where we are out of step with God and how we need the gospel and how we need Jesus to be in step with God. That's what we're trying to do. So when we go to God's word, it's showing us everything we need to do to live a life that brings him glory. A spirit-filled church is in God's word because everything is filtered through God's truth. Remember, we gave up our rights when we gave our life to Christ. Remember what our old life got us? Do you remember where, where you were before Jesus? Do you remember that you were broken, you were lost, you were under the penalty of God's wrath, that you had no way to save yourself? That all the sin we heaped up in our life was the effects of us living life our own way with our own truth? We gave that up. So now we submit and surrender to what Jesus has called us to, the truth that Jesus has brought us to. We surrender to him because he knows that our lives could not yield anything but broken wickedness. Well, how do we know that these guys were really from the Lord? How do we know the apostles' teaching? Like, how do we know that? How come they, were they just making stuff up? 
Where they just say, hey, this works for me, this doesn't work for you. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about it next week. But in verse 43, it says this. We're going to look at two verses. Verses 43 in Acts, it says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Okay. Wonders and signs were being done. That's important. So if you go back to verse 22 from the week before, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. He's saying you killed Jesus and God attested to him through his mighty works and wonders and signs. So how do we know that God's hand is on the apostles? How do we know that these are the men that God has chosen to speak truth? Wonders and miracles and signs. And we'll see how those play out as we go on. But it's, what it's doing is this. It's, it's authenticating God's hand on their lives. That's really what he's doing by these miracles because humans can't do it. So there's a supernatural aspect of what's going on to validate, to authenticate that these men are being used by God to communicate his word. Now, Luke points out that the apostles were doing this. It does that while being tested with the rest of God's word, okay? Can we really be careful on that? while being held up so there's no contradictions. It's not going against what God's word already says. It's not gonna be different than that, but this is authenticating who they are and what God has done in their life. Now, maybe you've gone to different churches. Maybe this is the first church you've ever been to. I don't know, but I'd say a lot of us have gone to a lot of different churches over the years. We've seen a lot of different churches. And you've maybe been at a church where they don't get into God's word very much, or they don't talk about it. They barely crack it. And, and I was talking with a guy this week. He said, just because a church is big, just because a church is full, doesn't mean that God's hands on it. But it's the word being preached that makes it what's happening. I liken it to this. And this is where you're going to have to deal with my weird analogies. It's like eating a Big Mac. Or any fast food. You, you pick. You, you pick. Carl's Jr., Jack in the Box, Taco Bell, Wendy's for my son Hawk. He loves Wendy's. Uh, square burgers. I don't know. I just can't get behind a square burger. Anyway, you see the burger and you go, ah, that will make me feel better. That looks delicious. The picture looks good. There's so much protein and there's even some vegetables in there. I see some carbs. I might need some carbs as well. And you think that burger will nourish me. That burger will give me what I need to accomplish what God has called me to do today. I am hungry. It looks good. And you eat it and you like when you go to a church that doesn't preach the word of God. 
Because God's word nourishes. God's word grows us. And man's words don't. And that's what we need to understand as a church. We will always, while I'm in this pulpit, preach from the word of God. We'll always open this word. We will let God's word speak, not Simon's word speaks. Fellowship. Now, I'm not talking about Frodo and Samwise and, you know, that we're not, this is not Lord of the Rings moments. Everyone just relax. We'll nerd out later. But we're talking about fellowship. As God has saved us to him, he's saving us to others as well. God draws his people together. Now, remember, these people were from all over. Different backgrounds, different understanding, different um, languages, uh, different cultures. And yet, it says that they, they were being saved and they believed in Jesus together and they had all things in common. Jesus does something where he, he brings people together like nothing else can. The word here that's being used for fellowship is koinonia. Uh, I never, there was a building named the koinonia building. Now, for the longest time, I had no idea what that meant when I, was, when I was growing up in high school. I'm like, go to the koinonia building. I'm like, why? Is it like, is the money? You keep the money there or something? I don't get it. Well, koinonia is the word used for fellowship. The common Greek word was koine, how that would be communicated. It means a shared activities that they were in participation with. That they shared activities, they were in participation together. Interestingly enough, a similar word used to describe that as well is marriage. And I was studying that, I'm like, oh, that's fascinating as you look at marriage. Now, marriage, uh, there are shirts that have the game over picture and someone getting married. And I, that's wrong. I, I love being married. I love being married to my wife specifically because that's who I'm married to. And I love that we've been married for 23 years. She is my best friend. It's been the greatest thing. If you're not married and you're like, I don't know if I should get married, get married. It's good. Unless God tells you not to and then don't get married, okay? But marriage is, is there's this thing that happens in marriage. And it, 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 I think I don't see it anywhere else. And maybe it happens somewhere else, but I don't, I don't see it anywhere else is that you've got a family, everyone's got a family because we are born to somebody, even if you don't have parents, you don't see it, you're in, a, you're in that family, that's your family. But when you get married, something magical takes place where a new family is created in that moment. When there's a covenant with God in that marriage, a family is created. It's the only place you see that. And as they grow and they have more kids, that family then grows and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That there is this connectedness to what it means to be married and to be in fellowship and to be with others. And Jesus is doing this as we are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus' blood on the cross. He is creating a family that we're invited into through Jesus. John talks about this in 1 John 1, 3. It says, for which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son and with Jesus Christ. That this fellowship together is also connected with our fellowship with God. Do you see how this is starting to like, it's so different that God the Father, we are his family. He has created a new family through Christ, through the covenant of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are a part of and that is connected to each other and to him. They're not separated they're actually saying that this is a part of who we are. Being a part of a church, being a part of the family is you're a part of the family. Now you may say, Simon, 
being around other Christians is hard. And it frustrates me at times. And I have to say to that is, you think? Of course. You've got a bunch of different people with a bunch of different backgrounds and a, and a, a different way of looking at the world that are coming together. Do you not think there's going to be friction there? I mean, let me, is there friction ever in your family at home? Of course not. You guys are perfect. Everyone gets along perfectly. Never had one child ever fight. No, of course we know that. And that's in the same family. So imagine with that on a global scale where people in different cultures, there's going to be friction. There's going to be tension at times. But you know what's funny in a family? Even if there's someone in your family who just, you're like, my brother or my sister or my, my mom or my dad, what do you do when they're in need and in trouble? You help them. Why? Because they're family. You understand, like, yeah, you may tick me off at times, but you're family, and we're connected by something deeper than just random relationships. Well, see, that's what the church is saying, that it's connected to something even deeper than family bonds. It's the blood of Jesus. And I would say this, because I talk to people, and a lot of being a pastor is helping people deal with other people, usually within the church, because there's frustrations, there's problems, there's conflict. And I tell them this all the time, maybe, just maybe, it's not about you helping them become a better person. Maybe it's God's using them to help you grow in your faith. What? No. Yeah. You're not perfect either. What? Like, God uses other people, difficult people at times, to cause us to grow, to cause us to press into him, to cause us to understand what grace really looks like and Guess what? This is how we are with God. And yet God lavishes with grace. He shows us grace upon grace upon mercy. And he is calling us to do the same. And when you deal with difficult people and frustrating people, you have an opportunity to show them the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that is a gift, whether you can admit that in this moment or not. Maybe like a couple years down the road it'll be a gift. Right now it's a pain. Someone once said, the stronger your vertical fellowship is, the stronger your horizontal fellowship will be. Why? Because the more we share in the grace that God has extended to us, the more we will share out that same grace with those in our lives. It's funny, the word koinonia is rooted in the word uh, koinonikos, which means generous. Why is that important? Because while we're in fellowship with God, we're in fellowship with the other. We become more and more like God. And if God is a generous God, then shouldn't we be generous too? Well, how is God a generous God? Well, the gospel is the perfect example of the generosity of God. That we did not earn God's favor. We did not deserve God's favor. That we were in rebellion against God. The Bible would say for while we were enemies of God, while we were dead in our trespasses, God saw us in our state he cared for us. He saw us. There is compassion in his heart when he saw us. The fact that we were dead in sin, unable to save ourselves. And yet he came. He left the throne room of heaven where he was worshipped. And he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became a man. Born in a dirty feeding trough. 
to walk amongst us, to show us who God is, to show us that there is hope, to show us that there is salvation for those that have placed their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And then he takes our sin, not his sin, our sin, and he goes to the cross, absorbing the wrath and the punishment that we rightfully deserved. And he died for us so we wouldn't have to. And then he doesn't stop there. He then pours out his righteousness on us. So now when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of his son that allows us to go before God, to pray to God, to talk to God, to not be afraid of God and his wrath and judgment anymore. And he gives that gift. And here's the generosity part. To who? Anyone who would call on the name of Jesus. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that God always responds with a yes when you call out to him. Always. When we experience this love of God, it makes us want to be like our Father. It makes us want to be generous with others. And this is just what happened, that they were selling their belongings and they were selling their possessions and they were giving away food to make sure that everyone was cared for, that everyone had what they need. Now, here's what I want to say this is not. And there's some studies on this. This is not early communism. This is not early socialism. And this is, I'm not trying to, like, you might like that, you might not. I don't, I don't really care. It's just not that. And here's why it's not that. Because they did it out of their own compulsion. The government forces in those other ones, right? You don't have a say. You, you're, you're forced. There's no choice. It's not out of a transformed heart. It's after an iron fist, if you will. So you're being forced into it. So that's why it's not that. So if you think, oh, this is what that, that's not at all what it is. So they shared for a far better reason. They were filled with God's generosity. Koinonikos is what they were filled with. And when you have felt that, you want to be a part of it. There's something about giving away that you're like, oh, I feel there's something different about it. Like, it's great to get stuff. I I like getting gifts. That's my love language. But I love to give good gifts because I love when people are like, this is thoughtful and it's good and it's useful and you, you know me and you understand me. When you see someone in need, when you can give like that, you get to start to partake in what it's like to be like Jesus. You get to do that. Think about this. Jesus would meet physical needs in the lives of people often. He did that. He just met physical needs. Why? Was that, was that the reason why? Well, no. It's to show that there is a bigger need, right? Every time he would give, he would show them, I care about you. I'm going to meet this, this physical need, but it's actually to point to a bigger need in your life. There's a spiritual need, a spiritual thing that you're lacking that needs to be healing, and I can heal that too. When, he, when he's raising people from the dead, that's good, but he's showing that I have victory over death. I can bring people back to life. For if we are dead in our trespasses, he is the one that can bring us back to life. And so he's always showing this. So our opportunities to give, to be generous, it gives us opportunities to talk about the real things in people's lives. Like that's, that's a reality. If you want more verses on how God calls us to be generous, because that's all throughout the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, uh, Luke uh, 12, 15, Acts 20, 35 will get you started. That'll give you some stuff to look at. Go look at those things. The third thing is worship. 
It says in verse 46 um, that they went to the temple worshiping, breaking bread, and in prayers. Those are the things that we see happening. These are all acts of worship. Uh, If we look at the breaking of bread, you may understand that picture if you've come to church. Even, uh, I think it was last week, we had our uh, communion service that we're talking about communion. That what they're doing is they are remembering what it costs for them to be saved from their sins. Remember, communion doesn't save you. It's remembering that we have been saved. It's remembering what Christ did. We're always putting in the forefront of our mind that Jesus has paid the price, that Jesus did the work, and that Jesus is the one that saves his people. We always want to remember that, because if not, what happens? Oh, I'm a good person. Oh, I'm doing the right things. Oh, look how good I am. See, it's so easy to slip back into this idea that it's about me and what I'm doing. Corinthians would actually point to, uh, was it 1 Corinthians eleven twenty? say, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? Talking about when you come together, you're going to eat the Lord's Supper. And then in verse 25, it would also say, in the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're going to be doing this until Jesus comes back. So you're like, I don't like it. Well, get used to it because we're going to do it a lot if you're a believer in Jesus. But it's saying as often as you come together, as often as you guys are connecting, you need to be remembering who I am and what I did. It says they would sing songs, uh, psalms and sing hymns um, that we'll read later on. And they were praying together. They'd be prayers of thanksgiving of God's great grace, of God's great mercy. Prayers of proclaiming the attributes of God and just just talking about how our God is great and our God is amazing and how our God is powerful. Praise of God who shouldn't love us but does constantly every day and that the gospel gives us the ability to be sustained constantly in the presence of God always. And they would bring their needs and their hurts and their desires to God. They'd say, this is what, I think I need this, Lord. I, I don't know, like, I'm hurting, I need this. Help this person, heal that person. We were just doing this. We've been praying for people all week that are, that are going through surgeries and we had some really good news on some of those. It's like, all right, our God's listening, our God hears. And as they did that, it strengthened their bond to each other and it strengthened their bond with God. They did this corporately. So they'd gather around the temple in the temple areas and they did it casually when they would gather in homes, as it says. And the homes for me, I, I just, I, I love it because there is something about eating a meal with somebody where you just start talking. Tell me about your life. Tell me about your life. Oh, where did you come from? And you start to hear people's lives. And if you're Christians, we start talking about what God did in our life. And we start sharing our testimonies. Like people say, I can't share my testimony. If I go to dinner with you and I say, hey, tell me about your life. You, tell, you just shared your testimony. It's not as hard as you think, but we're just talking about what God did in our lives. And that's what happens. You get together as you eat over a good meal. You talk, you hang out. You're enjoying the things that God has given you. We are praising God for good food and for good friends and for good conversation. Think of it this way. It looks like the Sunday service, corporately, and then casually, you're like, life groups, the rest of the week. So life group's a great starting point. Like, but if that's all that it is, you're not gonna get really what's there. And so it should be 
throughout the week. You should be having meals with people in your life groups. You should be hanging out. You should be doing activities. You should be spending time together. Because the more you know people, the more you know where they are, the more you know what they need, the more you can serve, the more you can show that love. God's using these things to do that. When Christians get together, we worship Jesus. That's what we do. Because it connects us where we shouldn't belong. Yet because of Jesus, we now belong. This kind of life, it does something. And it points to someone. And that's my fourth point is it's witnessing. God's church will always be about the mission of God to take the name of Jesus everywhere we go, period. It will always be about that. John Stott said this, the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit, so a spirit-filled church is a missionary church. That's a great statement. If this is a spirit-filled church and it's a missionary spirit, we will be about the mission of God constantly, no matter what we do. Now, hear this next part because I think it might be tricky and there's a couple of just extra letters that I add that make it hard. We witness and we are witnessed. Let me say it again. We witness and we are witnessed. What I mean by that is that we live out our faith and it is a witness of our faith in Jesus Christ. It changes us. It's the evidence of those that have been given a new heart by Christ that we live differently. We look differently. But the flip side is that there are others that are watching you constantly, right? You're like, well, yeah, I know my phone, big brother, all the time. They're always watching me no matter what I do. That's not what I'm talking about. Other people are watching us all the time. They want to see how does your worldview play out in your life? If you believe, and this could be anything, if you believe this, do you live that out fully? Are there contradictions in what you believe? As a Christian, if they find out you're a Christian, they're going to watch you all the more. They want to know like, hey, I know a little bit about the Bible. I know a little bit about what it says. So are you living that out? There's nothing worse than when you do something that says, I thought you were a Christian. Have you ever had that happen? Oh, even if they're wrong, it hurts. It's like, oh my gosh, you just totally called me out. Why? Because you're being witnessed of what you do. And people are always watching you. And, and this is what I thought was just, it's, it's interesting. Like, you have to ask the question, what are others seeing in your life? Like, what, what do people see? Do they see Jesus? Do they see unity or disunity when it comes to how the church works within itself? Do they see unity with how Christians interact with each other? Or is it disunity? Do they see Christ? Do they not see Christ? Do they just see the rest of the world? Is there, is there something about the way you live that's different than everyone else around you? There was something about Jesus that where he just stood out in crowds. He just stood out. People were drawn to him because he was so different. And they wanted to know, why is this guy saying this stuff? Why is this guy doing, I mean, there was miracles and those things were happening, but they were there for his teachings as well. And they heard him speak differently. They saw him live differently. He, he treated people that shouldn't have been treated with love. He treated them with love. And people caught on to that. There was something unique about the way that Jesus lived. Does anyone ever ask you, why do you do what you do? You ever been asked that? Like, why do you do this? Not like, you know, whatever, why you fold your laundry that way. Like, why do you live this way? Like, why, 
what makes you do that? And I think that that's really the question that was being asked in this, in this section. As the early church lived this out, the world was noticing what was happening. Why would these people all come together? They have nothing in common. Why would they be friends? Why would they be kind to each other? Why would they sell all their stuff to almost strangers that they just met? Why would they do that? Why are they spending so much time together? Like they're always hanging out. Who is this God that they are constantly worshiping and praising all the time? And why are they always telling others about it as if they wanted to be a part of the club? What was the result? Day by day, the Lord added to their number. If we would just trust God and live the way that he's called us to, God's gonna start working because we are the evidence of the active nature of the gospel in the world today. Like, we get to do that. But who was building the church? God was, okay? Don't, it wasn't, and these apostles were adding it. No, it was the Lord who was doing it. When we trust him and live for him and we point to him, God draws people to him. See, God is saving souls and growing his family. Now, you may be like, Simon, you are, you are looking through rose-colored lenses. I've been at churches. Like, you're painting a picture that's not accurate. I know. I know the church isn't perfect because there's a bunch of imperfect people there, okay? If you find the perfect church, don't go. You'll ruin it. Don't, just don't go, okay? And just ask, what are you doing? <laughs> they don't exist. And, and I get that we are in the honeymoon phase, if you will, of the early church, it's about to go sideways too, right? People are going to start doing people things. People are going to do selfish things. They're going to do sinful things. They're going to start making poor choices. They're not going to honor God with what they've been called to honor God with. And we're going to see that. And the best part is we get to see how God's word responds to it, how God uses the different apostles to speak to it, and how he brings truth to it so we can learn from it. So what we see here, it really is a prescriptive section of scripture. Right? This is how we should be living this thing out. But here's the thing. Whether you like the church or not, it's the vessel that God has given us to take the gospel forward. You just need to understand that. This is the vessel. This is what he is using to do that. And what I love is that this idea of belonging, being accepted, is about that God is, he saves the orphans of the world. Those who are lost, they have no home. And he gives them more than a house. He gives them a family. So you talk to people in the foster care system and they'll talk about, oh, I had a house and I had these homes that I bounced around from. But it's different to say, and God gave me a family. Because they know that there's a difference about being in a home and then being in a family. And he's saying, you are in a family. We love you, we care for you. You've been adopted into God's family and there's nothing you can do to pull, pull anyone away from God. If you're his, you're his. You're loved. The family really is the way that we get to serve the world and show God in a tangible way. 
I hear all the time from people, I don't feel God. You ever heard someone say that? I don't feel like God is close. I don't sense God. I don't, God, I don't feel like God's ever touched me. You ever hear that? Just me? No? Think about this. God has given the church to the world the same way that he gave Jesus to the world so they would see, know, and hear Jesus. Maybe it's us that aren't showing them God and how we live our lives. Maybe it's on us to start living in a way that actually reflects who Jesus is, that they would see, feel, smell, taste all who God is in their lives. Like, see, we get to be a part of it. It's the same way that Jesus was sent by God so we would know the Father. Jesus gave us the church so they would know Jesus, so they would know the Father. You see how it's all working in conjunction. He's given us the Holy Spirit that keeps us to be able to do that. God knits us together because it shows his great power to bring people together. Where countries fail, governments fail, laws fail, humanity fails, God is victorious. Because only God's love is the only thing that can bring us together. And he does this and it makes a beautiful tapestry or a mosaic where all the different pieces don't point to their individual pieces. They make a bigger picture which points to a bigger picture and that picture is God and it's his glory. And as God's people live this out, we get to behold and show the world the glory of God in all that we do. What I love is that he, he offers this to anyone. He is calling all those who feel like they don't belong, all those who feel like orphans, marginalized, cast out without a tribe to come to him. And he offers his gift through his, through his son, Jesus, the savior of the world who welcomes you with open arms. See, God knows what the world needs and what the world wants to belong in real relationship. And God offers that both through his son, Jesus Christ, with him and with others. The question is, what kind of church will we be to take that forward? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the church. I thank you for the church in my life. I thank you for what the church is meant to do and how you've saved us and how you've drawn us to yourselves. Lord, as you have saved us and you've saved us to others, I ask that we would be an example of the church and what it looks like and what it does. Lord, we want to see people saved. We want to see, and the Grace Hills day by day, the Lord added to their number. We want to see that. Help us to live these four areas out. Help us to be a church that does reflect who you are, that people would experience you, Father, through how we live with each other. Let us be generous. Let us be in fellowship. Let us be under your word. Let us witness. Let us worship you fully. We love you. Pray this in your glorious name. Amen.